come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome, listeners, to episode 133 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I'm your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And in this episode here for you, I'm going to be doing my Trek Through the Twos number seven, as I have two featured reviews here for you. The first one is The Death Kiss. This is from 1932, a movie I'd never really heard of and made for an interesting watch there. And then I ended up pairing it up with The Innocence. This is technically from 2021, but it's getting its wide release here and this year. Don't really know of a through line here, as one of these is a murder takes place on set, and the other one takes place with a bunch of children as they realize that they have telekinesis powers i guess the only thing here is that we kind of have a bit of a mystery of why they are paired up but you know it is what it is this is the two movies that i watched and then also for you i have a bunch of summer series prep with one movie slid in there that i also got to watch at the gateway film center the first movie i have is strangeland end of days i spit on your grave from 1978 Lux Eterna, and Hellbound Hellraiser 2. Those will be all the mini-reviews that I have for you on the episode. Don't think there's anything else I need to get you up to speed with here, so what I will say then is that I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. Let me get you over to a very brief break then before I get into those mini-reviews. Journey with a Cinephile. And for my first mini-review of this week is going to be Strangeland. This is from 1998. This was directed by John Pyplow. This was written by D. Snyder. This is starring Kevin Gage, Elizabeth Pena, and Snyder as well. This is a horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.0 on IMDb and a 2.5 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being, a detective pursues a sadist specializing in body modification rituals who lures teenagers through the internet. So this is a movie that I knew the DVD cover. When working at Family Video, this is one that would stand out when I was putting movies away. For whatever reason, though, I never took this one home to watch it. 
I did hear an interview with the writer and one of the stars of Snyder a few years ago on a podcast. It went on a list of movies to check out. I am now doing it for prep for the Summer Challenge series for the podcast under stairs as a potential pick for 1998. As this is like one of the top rated or most popular movies according to Letterboxd in the horror genre from that year that I had not seen as of yet. So since this could be on that show, I think this has a quite a bit good going for it. I like the commentary on the dangers of chat rooms and teens making bad choices that we get. I even like exploring the darkness of humanity, both of those in monsters, metaphorically speaking, and those that hide it better. The acting was solid enough for me. Not all of it is good, but no one ruins the movie either. I would also say the filmmaking aspects were good for what we got. My problem though is that there is a tonal shift and a couple of them that just don't work. I'm not sure if this movie wants to be or wants us to think at times. I wanted more of the body modification stuff and how that was used on the victims. Regardless, I thought this was solid. Despite my issues that I had with it, I think this is an above average movie. My issues just prevent it from me going any higher than that. Not going to give my actual numeric rating, but this is, if you want to do a little bit more of a deep dive into the horror genre, especially for like the late 90s, I would recommend giving Strangeland a watch. Then up next for you, I have another movie that was watched in prep for the summer series, and it's probably going to be my last one before the decisions are actually made for what's going to be on the episode. So I'm going to end up being a little bit cryptic until all that gets released, but the movie that I watched this time around was End of Days. This is from 1999, directed by Peter Hyams. This was written by Andrew W. Marlowe. It stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, Gabriel Byrne, and Robin Tunney. This is an action fantasy horror thriller film that is from the united states it is currently sitting on a 5.8 on imdb and a 2.6 on letterbox with a synopsis being at the end of the century satan visits new york in search of a bride it's up to an ex-cop who now runs an elite security outfit to stop him so this is a movie that i remember coming out to an extent but for whatever reason i didn't see this one i'm shocked though as growing up, I was a fan of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and this movie combining horror concepts with action elements. This is a recipe that is prime for me at that time. It's just odd that I didn't necessarily was watching new horror movies, so that's probably part of the reason, and I didn't catch this in the theater, and I'm not even sure if this was shown in my hometown, so that could also be a reason why it was missed by me. I think if I would have watched this when this came out, I would have a deeper appreciation for it. This movie ticks a lot of boxes for me. We have a religious-based horror film, and it's interesting that this is intercut as an action movie. Thought that acting was good, as I mean, I just kind of want to go over a little bit here with that before I like end up, you know, giving my final thoughts and moving on. But I mean, like Gabriel Byrne as our villain here of the man, aka Satan. Arnold Schwarzenegger as our lead. We have Robin Tunney as somebody that is being hunted by Satan. We have Kevin Pollock. We have CCH Pounder. We have O'Connor, who plays a priest. We have Udo Kier. We have Margolis, who plays this nurse, who might also be a Satanist. Then we have Mark Margolis, who's playing the Pope. And we have Rod Steiger as a priest as well. I mean, that's just a, you know, squad right there. The cinematography was fine. The practical effects we get were as well. And I come to expect that when I saw Stan Winston's name. I just felt like he was underutilized in this movie. They went with CGI that doesn't necessarily work for me. So after this viewing, I found this to be above average. It is lacking a bit for me to go higher and just missing that punch as well. So I would say that if you like religious-based horror films or if you're an Arnold fan, I would check this movie out because, I mean, we are getting some of those horror elements, you know, mixed in there. So that's all I have to say at this time for End of Days. 
And for my next mini review here is going to be a very brief one just because of the reason that I watch this one, and I'll get into that here in a second, but it is I Spit on Your Grave. This goes by the original title of Day of the Woman. This is from 1978. This was written and directed by Mir Zarkai. This stars Camille Keaton, Aaron Tabor, and Richard Pace. This is a horror thriller film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being, An aspiring writer is repeatedly gang-raped, humiliated, and left for dead by four men she systematically hunts down to seek revenge. So this movie is one that I knew about before ever seeing it. I'm sure that I learned of it after seeing The Last House on the Left as it fell in that same exploitation subgenre of rape revenge. My first time watching this was with an ex-girlfriend. We saw this and the remake in a short amount of time. My tastes at the time were different and I preferred the remake and hadn't seen either one since then. I am now watching this as prep for the Summer Challenge series on the podcast Under the Stairs. So I'm not going to give too much details here, but this movie won't be for everyone. We have a touchy subject, but I think that it's handled in a way where they don't necessarily glorify it. The revenge aspects are grounded. That, along with the lack of soundtrack, adds a sense of realism. Camille Keaton's acting is on point. Seeing the range that she goes through is good. And then the rest of the cast is fine to push her there. They are kind of caricatures of people, though. And I think part of that is to help alleviate some of the tension, as some of the things they do go a little bit comical. They go a bit over the top at times, which I was saying adds levity at some of the more horrific things that we are seeing. I would say that after this rewatch, this is a good movie. I still have some slight issues, but nothing that ruins this. I'm going to forego giving my numeric rating, so that's where I'm going to leave my review of I Spit on Your Grave from 1978. Then up next for you is not necessarily a horror movie, but I definitely think it's kind of flirting on that adjacent category, and that is Lux Eterna. This is written and directed by Gaspar Noé. This stars Beatrice Dalle, Charlotte Gainsborough, and Abby Lee. This is technically a drama thriller that is from France. It is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd with our synopsis here being two actresses, Dalle and Gainsborough, are on set telling stories about witches, but that's not all. This is an essay on cinema, the love of film, and onset hysterics. So this is a movie that I saw was from Noé and coming to the Gateway Film Center and it had my attention. Reading through the synopsis and checking the genres, I thought this could have been horror or at least adjacent, which is why I went and saw it. And also having Dolly in Gainsborough, I was in. What I should say next is that this isn't a horror movie. It does have elements though. This is a movie about making a movie. Dolly and Gainsborough play themselves. The first part is about them chatting about different things and experiences they've been on. They both are in this production that is borrowing from Hoxon, which is a documentary as well as a dramatization of witchcraft throughout the ages. This moves into a surreal situation to end as there's a scene with Gainsborough, Lee, and another actor that are you know burned at the stake in this movie that is being made. But this has a great feeling of dread. We see the production of This is Troubled. Dolly is the elder actor and she butts heads with the director who in turn wants her off the project. He takes this to the executive producer. We have a guy who is trying to pitch an idea of a role in his first feature film 
to Gainsboro as well as to Lee. This annoys both of them, and they both call him out on being unprofessional. Gainsboro learns a horrific thing might have happened to her daughter, and she is torn on what to do. The tension just builds until the climax, but this is interesting. This is all done in 51 minutes and is well played. This movie does some of that no way flair. It is a bit over the top at times, but I respect his style. The acting is natural as the characters play caricatures of themselves. The visuals here are amazing. This is the biggest takeaway for me. I enjoy the message they're conveying here both on the surface and underneath. This won't be for everyone though, as this is an art house film. It is short, so keep that in mind, as I thought this was just an interesting ride overall. So my rating here for Lux Eterna is an 8 out of 10. As I said, this isn't necessarily a horror movie, but if you're into his type of movies, I would recommend checking this movie out. And then my last mini-review for this week is going to be Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. This is from 1998. This was directed by Tony Randall. The screenplay was written by Peter Atkins, and it comes from the short story, or I guess novella technically, by Clive Barker. This stars Doug Bradley, Ashley Lawrence, and Claire Higgins. This is a horror thriller that is from the United Kingdom. It is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd with a synopsis being. Kirstie is brought to an institution after the horrible events of the previous movie where the occult-obsessed head doctor resurrects Julia and unleashes the Cenobites in their dynamic underworld. So this is a movie that I was late to. I had seen part three first and some of the other sequels have had of seeing the original. This is one I think I've only seen once or twice. I'm kind of fuzzy on that. As I know, one time I did watch it at home when I was visiting from college, and I also had the DVD, so I think at some point I had watched that. But I was excited to pop this one in as it came up on the Summer Challenge series on the podcast Under the Stairs to give me another excuse for a rewatch. So since it's going to potentially be on that show, this is a good sequel. It takes what the first movie does and builds on it. The way that it is set up, we don't necessarily need to see that first one. They do well in recapping enough and allows it to be seen on its own. I'm glad to see that they brought a bunch of characters back. Kirstie is great as our lead, and that is Ashley Lawrence, as well as introducing this other character of Tiffany to share that spot. I love the concept of the Cenobites and learning more about their lore in this version of Hell. The acting is good across the board. I also think the filmmaking aspects from the effects, the cinematography, and soundtrack are all solid. After this viewing of the movie, I would say this is a good one, just shy of being great for me. Now, since this could potentially be on the summer series, I'm going to forego as well giving my rating here, so I will say check this one out. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Go find Sheehan. He's someplace on the lot. Bring him here. Mr. Drew. Mr. Drew, what happened? What happened? Here. Here. Swell, ain't it? I made it myself. Who's in there? It's all right, Sheehan. What's going on now? Plenty. I found the gun that killed Brent. Where? Right here in this lamp. Why, it's gone. So it seems. Probably got tired sitting there and decided to take a walk. No, I'm not kidding. I came down on the set to have a look around. Just by accident, I noticed this, this smudge on the lamp here. So I looked inside. Found a small derringer fastened there, attached to an electromagnet. There's the wire it was connected to. And I got a bump on the head that knocked me out. Well, this proves one thing. Whoever killed Brent knew a whole lot about electricity. Who has charge of these lamps? Head gaffer? Well, what's that in English? The chief electrician. Who is he? Al Payne? 
Where can I find him? Here, Tom will take you over. Come here, kid. Let me take a look at that head. Well, that's all right. Now, listen. You stop monkeying around with police matters. It's a tough racket. That head of yours won't stand another wallop. Come on, let's get going. And for my first featured review on this episode is going to be The Death Kiss. This is from 1932. This was directed by Edwin L. Marin. This comes from the book written by Madeline St. Dennis. The screenplay was co-written amongst Barry Berenger and Gordon Kahn. Then there's some uncredited dialogue helped by Joe Traub. This stars... Bella Lugosi, David Manners, and Adrian Ames, while also featuring John Ray, Vince Barnett, Alexander Carr, Edward Van Sloan, Harold Minger, Barbara Bedford, Al Hill, Harold Waldridge, Wade Boltler, Lee Morin, King Baggett, Wilson Bange, Phil Bloom, Eddie Boland, and Morgan Brown. This is a comedy, crime, drama, mystery, romance, horror film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being murder during a film shoot sparks a search for the killer. So this is a movie that I had never heard of until looking for horror movies from 1932. I saw that I could stream this one a couple different spots, so that made it easy. What piqued my interest is that this is another film that was featuring Lugosi that I could tick off my list of the unseen ones that featured him. So before I get into the movie itself, let me do some featured notes on some of the key people here. And I'll start with our director of Marin. He had 56 credits. Of them, I've seen two. This was actually his directorial debut. And it also technically is his only horror movie. The only other movie that I saw from this director would be an adjacent one of The Invisible Agent, which is taking The Invisible Man, used him in World War II as a secret agent. Not the best in that series, but it was definitely an interesting kind of take. Then moving to our writers, I'll first start with Khan. He wrote 23 movies. I've only ever seen this one, and this is the only one that's in horror. The other writer is Berenger, who had 18 credits. And again, this is the only one I've seen from him. He did write One Glorious Day from 1922, which was a lost film that was in the horror genre. I know when I was looking up some stuff, I probably saw a actor that was in that movie, and that's why the title actually stuck out to me. Actually, the poster did when I was looking it up earlier. Now, moving to our actors, first is Manners. I've seen four of his 39 works. His three most popular are Dracula, The Mummy, and The Black Cat. Now, these are all the universal ones. And I've seen all of them, so I've actually seen all of his horror movies now with this one, and everything that I've seen from him is his works and genre. Then to our co-star and love interest in the movie is Ames. She was in 26 features. I've only ever seen this one, and this is the only horror film. Then our last star is Lugosi. I brought him up last episode, and I'm now at 24 of his 130 films, 18% I've watched overall. I'm also at 24 of his 60 horror movies, and he is now tied for my 13th most seen actor of all time. So for this movie here, we start by seeing Marsha Lane, who's portrayed by Ames, in a car with two guys. She tells them that the man she kisses is their target. The man she is referring to is talking with a bellhop. She comes up, kisses him, and then leaves. This puts the guy on cloud nine until he's shot. We then pan over to see that this is actually a movie set. Tom Avery, who's portrayed by Van Sloan, is the director, and he wants everyone to cut. He didn't like the theatrics that Miles Brent, who is portrayed by Edmund Burns, did when he died. Everyone is shocked to find out that their star is truly shot and is also now dead. 
The information moves through channels to lock it down. Joseph Steiner, who is portrayed by Lugosi, is the manager of the studio, and he alerts the head of security, Officer Gulliver, portrayed by Barnett. Now, their whole goal here is to not let anyone in or out of the lot, and then they also have to alert Leon A. Grossmith, who is portrayed by Carr, who is the president of this studio, and he's also told. Now, he panics thinking of the money that he is losing by, you know, not having the star anymore and what they're going to do going forward. Now, despite their efforts, the police arrive to take over the investigation. They're led by Detective Lieutenant Sheehan, portrayed by Ray. His first suspect is the ex-wife of the victim, Marcia. He also considers Chalmers, portrayed by Roscoe, who was a former gaffer and is now an extra in this movie. Now, Gulliver catches him trying to discard a loaded gun. It is the same caliber as the weapon that killed Miles, so he also becomes a suspect. Now, the case isn't as cut and dry as the detectives think. Franklin Drew, portrayed by Manners, is a bit actor in this movie, and he's seeing Marsha. He also is reading crime stories a lot. He continually pokes holes in the stories or the questions that Sheehan asks. It gets to the point where he actually sends Frank away. Whoever is behind this is trying to cover up the crime. This includes destroying evidence and even killing others who know too much. The only thing that is known is that someone working on this film is the killer. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap here. I think that does well in giving you a gist of the story as well as giving you the information about the characters involved. I'll be honest, this movie feels like it's the basis for the player or at least inspired that movie and others like it. Settling in to watch this movie, I wasn't sure what we were going to get. I'm glad that I ended up seeing this one though and gave it a shot. We have an interesting movie that is underseen. Without playing my hand too much, I think this is a hidden gem. Where I'll go would be with the story here. This is based on a novel, which doesn't shock me for the era. Sheehan calls out Frank for reading these type of stories, like these murder mysteries or detective stories, so it feels like this is art imitating life. I'm not sure if this is in the novel or not, but it does feel like St. Dennis is incorporating themselves a bit into the story through this character of Frank. I like that idea. This movie is ahead of its time, as it's a murder mystery that is also a satire on the film industry. That surprised me with how early into the filmmaking business we are already getting, you know, a movie like this, as it's pointing out, like, the chain of command and how it slows everything up, and how it becomes problematic with the detectives trying to solve this case. The murder mystery isn't overly complex, but the commentary there impressed me, and we're also kind of getting the idea here about how much money is in the film industry, and having, like, a shutdown like this can really kind of mess things up there. Now, the murder mystery aspects is where I'll go next. Even though the movie is now 90 plus years old, I'm not going to spoil what happens. I am annoyed with myself, though. We aren't getting the most complex mystery. Being that I've watched quite a few thrillers like this or Gialli, that would, you know, end up being inspired by movies like this. I was logically working out who the killer was. I ended up guessing wrong, but only because I overlooked a name with evidence and then got the names of some of the characters mixed up a bit. I thought it was someone else. Regardless, it wasn't a cheat, which is a big thing for me, so I was happy there. I liked the much bigger picture of what happened here, as well as to why. It isn't the best one, like these type of movies, but being when it came out, I will give a lot of credit for this. Then I'll take this over to the character of Frank. He's an interesting one. He is an actor, and one that hasn't made a name for himself as of yet. Manners plays this role so well with bringing sass to it. I'm not sure if it would work today how Frank acts, but I think it fits for the era that this was made. He is doing his own investigation, which would fit right into a giallo. 
It does feel like a commentary here as well since Sheehan and the other detectives jumped to conclusions. If they look deeper, there's evidence to disprove their theories that they come up with. It feels like this movie is saying that if you don't do the best work and you go with the obvious answer, even if it isn't correct. I don't hate exploring this idea, especially because there are some bad cops out there, but it does seem like it's a bit ahead of its time with some of these ideas. So that should be enough for the story element, so I'll go over to the acting. I've already said my piece on manners, and I thought that Ames was fine as the prime suspect of killing Miles, or at least being behind whoever did it. I did feel bad for her in that regard. It was nice to see Lugosi in a bit different role than I'm used to. He was good here as well. Ray was solid as his detective. He is quick to jump to conclusions to wrap the case up as soon as possible. I can believe that though. But I do like what they're doing there as well. Now Barnett brings levity that I don't necessarily need, but it fits for the era. Other than that, I thought that Van Sloan, Carr, and the rest of the cast really rounded this out for what was needed as well. Then to close out this before I get into some trivia would be the filmmaking aspects. I think this is shot well. The camera's mostly static, but when it comes to this type of era, I come to expect that in the movies. We do have some framing that worked for me. It did well in hiding things and revealing others when needed. There aren't much in the way of effects, but we also don't need them in a movie like this. Other than that, the soundtrack was fine. It doesn't necessarily stand out, but it also doesn't hurt the movie though either. So then to get over to some of the trivia from the IMDb page, the showing on December 5th of 1932 was a preview and had no hand-tinted sequences. The film was scheduled for a Christmas Day release that year, but it ended up being held up so some of the sequences could be tinted. Kino Lorber Films was released a Blu-ray version of this that used an existing 34mm print with missing scenes in color hand-tinted segments restored. MGM purchased Tiffany's Nitrate original film negative library and burned the collection during the burning of Atlanta sequence in Gone with the Wind, which is kind of a shame. This movie was trying to use some of the success of Dracula from the year before, which also had Manners, Van Sloan, and Lugosi. The studio wanted to emphasize this, as well as that's why they give Lugosi top billing, even though he has such a small supporting role. The Tornet Studios, where the story takes place, were actually located within California Tiffany Studios in Hollywood, where the production was filmed in November of 32. Directorial debut, as I was saying, of Marin. The failure of the original copyright holder to renew this is why there are a ton of VHS and DVD copies out there, because it is in public domain. It's also the film debut of George O'Hanlon. So that's all I'm going to do for trivia is that's about the extent of what I found to be interesting on there. So what I will say then is that this movie was a lot of fun for me. We are getting an early murder mystery that has commentary about the film industry as well as how police solve crimes. The acting for this is solid with manners leading the way. We also get smaller roles from bigger names like Lugosi and Van Sloan. I think the filmmaking aspects were solid. This is another one that is light on the horror elements. If it was made today, I don't think it would be classified as one, but being the era that it was placed there... Regardless of that, I did enjoy my time here. I would recommend seeing this if you enjoy older movies like this or if you have others that would borrow from this and you kind of want to see like a historical type thing there. For this, I found it to be above average. Just missing some elements for me to go higher than that. So my rating here for The Death Kiss is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section as I don't think there's anything else that I didn't delve into here. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review.
Hör du nya? Ja. Ska jag visa nu? Det var du snakkar med. Jag snakkar med någon som inte är här. Kolla nu. And for my second featured review here on this episode is going to be The Innocence. This is from 2021, but it's getting its wide release here in 2022. This goes by the original title of Uskilich. Might not be pronouncing that correctly, but I'm not very good with this language. So this is written and directed by Eskel Vogt. This stars Raquel Lenora Flatum, Aval Brian Samo. Ramstad and Sam Asroff, as well as also featuring Mina Yasmin Brimsheth Asheim, Ellen Dorit Peterson, Morten Svartveit, Kandra Youssef, Lisa Tani, Irina Eidsvold Tonen, Marius Kolbenstedt, Kim Otto Hansen, Nor Eric Vagland Torgensen. Birgit Norby and George Grotjord Glenn. Now, if I mispronounce any of your names, I do apologize once again. But this is a drama, fantasy, horror, mystery, thriller film that is a co-production between Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, France, and the United Kingdom. This is currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being... During the bright Nordic summer, a group of children reveal their dark and mysterious powers when the adults aren't looking, and playtime takes a dangerous turn. So this is a movie that I believe I got on my radar due to it showing at film festivals. I feel like the horror cast talked about this one, if memory serves, and a couple of hosts had seen this one from that show. I did catch part of the trailer, but when I realized it was going to be horror, I stopped watching, as you know, I don't like to watch trailers if I can avoid it. And I went to the Gateway Film Center to catch this one as well. So before I jump into the movie itself, let me do some feature notes on the key players, and this is going to be a little bit short, is I'll start with our director of Vogt, who has two credits in this role. His first feature film had one of the other actors in this, and it looks to be a drama. This is the only one that I've seen from him. As a writer, he has 10 credits, and this is the only one in genre and that I've seen. Moving to our actors, I'll start with Flotum, as this is her feature film debut. The same for Ramstad, which makes her performance even more amazing to me, and I'll get into that later. Then to round this out, Asraf's feature film debut as well. So, 
For this movie, we start by getting to meet our main characters. There is Ida, portrayed by Flotum, and her sister Anna, portrayed by Romstad. The latter has a severe case of autism where she can no longer verbalize. She is almost in an odd state where her parents, who are played by Peterson and Sartvite, have trouble communicating with her. Ida resents her while still loving her, and we see her pinch her sister as a form of revenge as she feels like her sister is taking all the attention. This family is moving to a new apartment for the father's job. Ida wants the mother to take her and go on vacation. She tells her daughter that they can't take time off with their father's new position, and Ida didn't mean that at all and doesn't mean for all of them to go, she just means her and her mother. To make matters worse, it is summer so most of the families around here are gone as well. Now, that doesn't mean everyone is, though. Ida goes outside to play and meets Ben, who is portrayed by Ashraf. And we learn through interactions with his mother, who is portrayed by Tony, that she is hard on him. He does show Ida that he has developed this ability to move things with his mind. He doesn't have that much abilities at the beginning of this, as the object that he moves cannot weigh too much, and he can really only alter its path as being dropped before him, where instead of just dropping straight down due to gravity, he is able to make it kind of move to either direction, and it can only go so far before it hits the ground. Now, these children become friends, and Ida becomes upset with her mother as she forces her to take Anna with her the next day. She leaves her on a tire swing and goes off with Ben. Together, they have a heartbreaking scene that they do something horrible to another girl's cat. This other girl is Aisha, portrayed by Osheim. She can hear Anna, even though this older girl cannot speak, and they end up hanging out together, and Ida is kind of confused when she comes upon them, as she feels like Anna has disappeared, but she ends up finding her with this other girl. Now, her home life is a lot like Ben, and this is Asha. Her mother is Yusuf, and she is dealing with the depression of losing her partner as well as Aisha's father. Now, this group bonds over realizing that they have telepathic powers. At least some of them do. Aisha can hear Anna's thoughts. Ben realizes that he can read Aisha's thoughts and even can use this power to read Anna's through this other girl as it's almost, I would say, kind of like a conduit for like electricity that... If you have something in between them, like a switch, he cannot turn on this light, but he can turn it on through this other person. Now, we also learn that he has other abilities. He uses it to punish a teen that bullies him and even his own mother. Ben's power grows and it becomes scary to the point that almost anyone that tries to stop him, he can do something to defend himself and then also turns on others when he feels slighted. So that's why I want to leave my recap as well as introducing these characters. And where I want to start is that I saw on the Internet Movie Database somebody saying that this feels like an origin story for a superhero movie. And I agree with that. That's what I thought while seeing this in the theater, actually. It is done in a subtle way and it makes it feel grounded despite these children having supernatural powers. And I did like that element. This almost feels like an X-Men movie, actually. Or anything with like telepathic powers. So, I mean, you could even think of things like Firestarter or Carrie. Now, to get more into the meat of this movie, I want to talk about Ida and Anna. Ida is a character that made me mad at the beginning. She feels resentment towards Anna since she needs so much of their parents' attention, and I get that, though. I've not been in this situation like this, but I mean, I guess as I'm actually recording this, I had a stutter for a good year or two after my sister was born because I mentally was vying for my parents' attention, it felt like. And actually, it's kind of funny is my brain sometimes works faster than my mouth does. So 
I actually try to edit it out on here, but if you talk to me in person, there are times where I will slip up and might repeat the beginning of sentences because I'm trying to figure out the words that I want to go to there. So, I mean, I still have some of those things in me and, you know, kind of thought I would share a little bit of personal stuff there. Now, I have not been in her shoes, though, so I'm not going to judge too much. I did think that Flottom was good in this role and she's great at getting a reaction out of me. Anna is interesting as well. She is one of the two that has, you know, more distinct powers, and I like this idea. Her affliction makes it tough, but it almost seems like her brain is developed in a different way. That works for me. I also think that Romstad does a great job at this portrayal of this character, since her picture on Letterboxd seems to be that she does not have these things, and I mean, it would be very difficult for somebody like this, so her acting here is pretty on point. And I mean, to be honest, actually, I am kind of giving a little bit of spoiler before I get to that section, but I think the acting here is good despite being mostly children. Now, where I want to go next would be the character of Ben. I hated this kid. His mother is struggling and she takes it out on him. He's a psychopath from it, though. We see him hurt a cat and that really bothered me. It doesn't take well to be in bullying and that's probably part of his issue as well. We see that he gets angry with Ida and Aisha for messing with him. There are times where I've gotten annoyed when somebody goes too far. They are lightly messing with him, though, where I would usually just kind of laugh this stuff off, but it gets him angry. Osroff was good in this role. He does well at showing the hurt when he's home and then being the evil kid as the movie progresses. It is well done. It also made my anxiety going up when seeing how things play out as he grows in power. So that concept is where I want to go to next. This movie is dealing with the idea of getting too powerful too quickly, something akin to like Akira or Anakin in Star Wars. We have a character like Ben who is broken. He has a rough home life and probably is dealing with a lot of bullying. He knows that he has a bit of telekinesis, but when he meets Anna, he realizes that he is more powerful than that. He discovers the ability to control others and the powers that we saw earlier are much stronger. What I like though is that his counterpart of Anna we learn that she is more powerful than he is, and she's the most powerful in this group, but due to her condition, it is unassuming. I did enjoy how things play out there. I don't think there's anything else that I want to delve into for the story, and I've gone over most of the acting. I did like Ashheim and the others that are struggling with their mothers. He knows his mother is down. Aisha also does what she can to cheer her up, but she also needs time. I'd say that Peterson, Svartfart... Yusef and Tony are all solid as well as parents. They're all distinct enough characters and their personalities also have effects on how their children act as well. The rest of the cast helped to round these out and push our children where they end up for me. So then the last thing before I get into trivia would be the filmmaking aspects. I think that the cinematography here is great. They do some interesting shots and it looks good. There are also something they do with shadows and changing how a scene looks when Ben is influencing them. I did like showing this and how they do, and it'll cut back and forth so we know that what the character is seeing is not actually what's happening. They do well in editing to seeing the truth, as I was saying, as well as that duality it's building. The effects were good too. There are some practical ones and a bit of CGI. I think how this is handled works as well. It also did well in hiding things when needed, which helps. Other than that, I thought the soundtrack was good to build the atmosphere that this movie needed on top of that. So then, before I get into my final thoughts here, I do have a bit of trivia where Ellen Dorrit Peterson, who plays Ida's mum, and Flotem, who plays Ida, are also mother and daughter in real life. Aisha's skin disorder is called Vitiligo. 
This occurs when there's a loss of melatocytes, which are pigmented cells in the skin. The little actress of Osheim has this condition in real life, which is sad, but I mean, I also think that it makes her a bit distinct, so hopefully she's not dealing too much with this issue. So then, to close this out here, I thought this movie looked good. I was a bit leery about it, though. I'm glad that I watched it, as we have a group of children who are different while also having things in common. I'd say the acting from them was good. The rest of the cast is solid in support. We don't get a lot of effects, but when you would expect, what we do get is good. I had no issues there. Other than that, we have some good filmmaking aspects, especially the cinematography. I think this is an above-average movie, just below being good. I'm curious to see where this will sit after a second watch for me. So my rating here for The Innocence is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Not going to do a spoiler section, as I don't think a lot of people have seen this movie yet. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a very brief break before I close out the show. I would like to welcome you back and then just to close everything out here if you'd like to send me an email with any sort of feedback or anything that you'd like to have read on the show you can send me that email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com if there's anything that you send me you don't want right on the show just let me know in that email if you'd like to read any of the reviews from anything on this episode or any of the past episodes that's horrorreview.webnode.com if you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, I'm David Mishkin Garrett Jr. On Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. And over there, I'll be posting all of the reviews of anything that I'm watching that is horror or non-horror alike. If you'd like to follow my Instagram page, that's David OSU87. If you'd like to follow the Journey with a Cinephile Instagram, that's Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. What I will be posting over there is on both of them the movie posters of anything that I am reviewing. And if you follow my personal one, every now and then you might see some personal pictures if I ever post any because I tend to forget while I'm out and about. And just to make it easier on you, I'll have all of those links in the show notes. And then the last thing I'd ask you to do is that whatever podcatching device you're listening to me on, if you could go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you're able to rate and review just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like, as well as to get out to more listeners out there as well. So for my next episode, this is going to be another of my Trek to the Twos episodes as I'm going to have featured reviews of Men. This is the new Alex Garland movie. I've actually already seen it. I just haven't written my review of it yet and recorded anything, but that has already been watched. And I'm also going to pair that up with 1932's The Monster Walks. This on the surface sounds like we might make for an interesting double feature i still have to watch this older movie but i will do that i will also be watching more of the summer series prep movies for the mini reviews for you so i'll try to pack in as many of those as i can don't think there's anything else that you need to get you up to speed with here so what i will say then in closing is that whatever you do today i hope you're safe and doing it and have a great time out there as well as thank you so much for listening this is your tour guide of david garrett jr and i am signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending. <laughs>